Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, you lovelies, to your weekly dose of tales. And today I have for you an audiobook showcase of an old supporter of mine who's become an author by the name of D.R. Martin. The book is titled Grim Nights and comes in at 265 pages long. It is a fantasy novel about adventure, magic, sentient animals, and a protagonist by the name of Howl. And knowing the author myself, and knowing his sense of humor and way with words, I am absolutely confident that this will be a fantastic read. So without further ado, a big thank you to D.R. Martin for allowing me to showcase their works. This recording will be in an audiobook manner, so no background music, but I hope you love it. And without further ado, let's jump right on in. Chapter 1. Tattle Tales. Howl and Ash. Unnatural winds rush and tumble along the Sig Mountain Passage that spans the distance between the Upper Valley Kingdom of Bowden and the Lower Coastal Kingdom of Calderon. The clouds above give no sign of where the wind started or how long they have been blowing. The only certain thing is that knowing where they would end is anyone's guess. Muted sounds of early spring fill the trail as the wind rustles through the trees. A solitary bird of prey appears at the treetops, known by many names. Seahawk, fishhawk, osprey. The bird is female and decidedly far from water. Flying with purposeful intent, she surfs on the wind and glides around the bending turns. She keeps a watchful eye on the trail through dips and dives and suddenly pulls up to rise above the breeze, letting the wind roll ahead. However, for a moment, she scans the mountain surroundings. Turning towards the southwest trail, she spies a formation of men riding in the opposite direction. Her keen eyes detect that the horses and riders are adorned in military attire, while a few of the horses are groomed impeccably with braided manes. Her eyes pick up additional movement from the tree line and a second smaller group of riders appears on the trail. They stop and briefly chatter before the new riders fall in line at the rear, and the formation continues away. The hawk watches for a little longer and then turns back to the northeast trail. Her steely eyes follow the winds, rolling straight toward a lone traveller on the path. He is just a young boy, certainly no one of any fame or acclaim. Even the Lady Hawk knows that the mountain trail is not a safe place for a young lad to be travelling alone. The boy is barely thirteen, wearing a large baggy robe with a satchel hanging from one shoulder and carrying a tall walking staff. His robe is a quality garment but weathered and worn. A few sizes too big, it covers his long strap sandals and hinders his step. He is not looking to engage anyone in long conversations about high fashion, but he is talking to himself. I am Howell, son of Grim the Wizard, he says nervously. The sound of fast winds builds up from behind and approaches like a thundering beast. Howell stops in his tracks and quickly turns towards the sound. Too late, the wind slams him mid-stride 
and pushes him off balance. He catches himself by anchoring his staff on the ground and bracing against the winds. Hey! He yells. The wind pass, and he straightens up again. His robes are bunched and disheveled, and his shaggy brown hair has blown across his face. He let the staff fall to the ground, and he begins to straighten his clothes. He struggles to get his hands free from his long, tangled sleeves. He is startled again by a screech from high above. Howl looks up just in time to see the bird of prey flying away. He wipes the hair back from his pale blue-green eyes. Very funny, he mutters to himself. Howl stoops to pick up the wooden staff. At first glance, it seems like the working staff is just for show, but upon closer inspection, he is slightly unsteady on his feet and leans on the staff for support. As the winds die down, he repositions the bag on his shoulder and looks up and down the trail. He lingers as if considering both directions and then turns back to carry on toward Bowden. Unseen from the tree line, a large black wolf tracks the boy and matches his every step. Nervously, Howell glances at the trees and then looks ahead, muttering, This, this is, is not, not going, going to, to work, work, he says. Relax. A growling voice comes from the trees at his side. Easy for you to say. You're not the one walking around in all this, Hal says. He gestures at his garments and seeing his sandal straps are untied again, he moans and bends down to retie the straps. Stick to the plan. In, out. Keep it short and simple, the voice replies. Hal stands up and flexes like a contortionist, trying to scratch the middle of his back. This is not going to work, he repeats. You got this, the voice growls. The mountain pass trail is a series of twists and turns that suddenly opens into an area at the foot of the mountains, known by travelers and locals as Gilderland. Howell carries on for another half a click before approaching a small industrial village called Basin. The name is far from glamorous, but is still a clear winner over the other choices of armpit and toilet. The town lies on the bank of the Somme River, and is home to mounds of raw ore, blacksmiths, tailors, cobblers, inns, and pubs for everything else. Howell walks through the village with eyes wide open in wonder, and continues forward until approaching a long stone and wooden bridge that crosses the river. The path leads him past a collection of small wooden structures used to house bridge personnel and maintenance equipment. Howell looks up at the bridge and sees two members of the Gilderland Guard wearing light armor and hilted swords, standing next to a covered guard station. They are pacing back and forth across the wooden planks of the bridge. They notice Howell and stop to watch with equal parts curiosity and amusement as the young boy in big clothes struggles to approach. Go on, look at this one. They snicker. Howell reaches the bridge and stops in front of the sentry. They eye the boy curiously. What do you want? They ask. 
Harold opens his mouth to speak, and his voice cracks. I am... Uh, uh, <coughs> he begins to howl, but cuts off and pretends to cough. Going through puberty is tough for any kid, but this takes the cake. The bridge guards, BGs, look at each other and laugh. Slightly embarrassed, Hal repeats, I am Howl, son of Grim. The guards notice something wild in his eyes, and he speaks with an accent they have never heard before. I seek an audience with King Eroch to discuss a matter of the utmost import. The guards stop laughing at the mention of their king and become more serious. Say it's your business with the king. They bark. A loud yowling suddenly emanates from the trees, alarmingly close to the bridge. The bridge guards quickly look at the woods and then back to the boy. Hal stomps his staff on the ground and begins to mutter in a wolfish language. He raises his free hand and extends his palm to the bridge beneath their feet. The guards look confused as the wooden planks soften and sag under their weight. Before they can adjust their balance, the planks bounce back into shape and fling the guards into the air like dolls. They drop their weapons as they fall hard on the reconstituted bridge. Two other on-duty soldiers, Cookie and Fisher, hear the commotion and wander over to investigate. Cookie is wearing the proud uniform of Kitchen Patrol a food-stained apron and holding a soup spoon. Fisher is holding a bone-net needle and a tangled section of fishing net. Hey, what's going on? Cookie asks, looking embarrassed and angry. The guards get back to their feet. While they dust themselves off, they realize the howling has stopped and the boy is nervously standing on the path, tightly grasping his walking staff. Without warning, a large black wolf with glowing yellow eyes enters the trail ten meters behind Howl. Ferociously growling and snarling, weaponless, the guards retreat several paces. Howl turns around in time to see the wolf rushing toward him, charging at full speed. The guards react with professional excellence. Five bits on the wolf, shouts Cookie. Admittedly, pulling guard duty on an old bridge in the middle of nowhere is neither choice nor exciting. So when they see an opportunity to take bets on a perilous outcome, they are decisive men of action. I'll take that bet. Fisher quickly counters and roots for Howell. Come on, kid. Use that big stick. Howell is deeply touched by their concern. Nice. They could bother to watch a voracious wolf lunge for his throat. He clutches his staff and swings his free hand in a large circle. The soldiers see a shimmering orb suddenly engulf the wolf and transform it into a long-tailed flying squirrel. The squirrel gently floats onto the boy's outstretched arm, then scampers up to his shoulder, where it lies down and wraps its long tail around his neck. Hey, Ash, Howell says softly. The soldiers have all seen battle and blood. They have even heard the rumors of the mountain wizard. But none of them have ever seen real magic. It must be unsettling when the impossible is openly displayed before your eyes. Cookie's mouth hangs open and he drops his spoon. 
Did a wolf just jump into a sparkly cloud and turn into a squirrel? He asks. Fisher smacks Cookie on the meat of his arm. Dang, son. You owe me five bits. Howell turns back to the men, with the squirrel looking at them from his shoulder. He stabs the staff again. I am Howell, son of Grim. His voice booms. I have come to see the king. He quietly whispers to Ash the squirrel. Get ready if this goes south. The guards scramble to retrieve their fallen weapons and spoon. They are convinced that the squirrel has a threatening look in his eyes, and Cookie slowly approaches the sentry. Hey, uh, if you want to take him to the king, we can cover your watch. Cookie says. Or we could take him, Fisher suggests. The duty guards look at each other and nod. If they pass this off and it goes bad, they will get the blame, or worse. Crap. They agree. If they pass this off and it turns out good, they won't get the credit. The guards sigh wearily. No, no. We'll bring him to Black Hall. Chapter 2 Into the Valley of Men Soaring high from a bird's eye view, the Sig Mountain range stretches far beyond the horizon from the frigid northern waters of the Bjorn Sea down to the southern volcanic shores of Oyster Bay. The range is the result of tectonic activity from millennia past that formed the treacherous summits. Nestled high on the elevated eastern plateau beyond the mountains lays the valley kingdom of Bowdoin. The plateau is rolling and uneven, but still workable for numerous community farms ranging in size from a hundred to a thousand hectares. The outer edge of the plateau is a ring of dense trees that are harvested for lumber and fruits. Living on a mountain plateau is not for the mild or weak-hearted. The sun sets early behind the towering peaks several hours before the skies change from blue to black and the mountains glow with highlights of purple and red. During the windy season, the valley becomes a giant wind funnel that wrecks havoc every year. In the winter months, when the winds reverse direction and blow in from the sea, the distant coastal region and open farmlands are ravaged by typhoons, but the kingdom of Bowdoin is high and dry behind the mountain peaks. The place is surrounded by 13 areas. Balham Ocean, Bowdoin, Bjorn Sea, Calderon, Gobari Desert, Gilderland, Marencia, Nagoto Juno, Oyster Bay, Salt Sea, Sig Mountains, Somme River, and Southern Peak. The rocky eastern slopes of the mountains are notched with undulating streams that cascade rain and melted snow down to the river Somme below. The mountain rivers runs through the valley and provides the lifeblood for Bowdoin farming and agriculture. It has taken thousands of years of pressure and force to form the jutting rock outcrops, anticlines, and stratified layers of distinct and varied sediment. Scattered down along the base of the mountain is a system of caves inhabited by a settlement of dwarf miners. The miners are separated from the village basin as they prefer to work and live protected by the harsh environment of the valley. 
To outsiders and traders, Bowdoin is known as a kingdom of diverse industries, including fish and sheep, forestry and farming, and heavy metal. Although the primary revenue of Bowdoin is iron ore and weapons, everyone still has to eat. As a result, the settlers worked the land and slowly transformed it into viable farms and sheep country. Sheepskin, wool, and fresh produce became major commodities that supplied the town with food and clothes and helped Bowdoin establish itself as an independent kingdom. Every autumn, farmers seed the fields and then labor in the summer months to cultivate the grasses and grains that provide food and sustenance throughout the long, harsh winters. When the weather permits and the crops are plentiful, Bowdoin flourishes. The farmers also learned which areas along the foothills were suitable for crops and which were better suited to raise herds of sheep and goats. In the early days, Bowdoin could depend on bountiful hunting in the mountains, but the snares and traps became increasingly empty over time. It was, therefore, a welcome discovery that the Somme River replenished every year with wild salmon drawn back by seasonal mating migrations. Local fishing became a godsend for residents of the Valley Kingdom and quickly replaced the demand for imported products from the shores of Calderon. Of course, residents willing to pay high import prices could still buy exotic, smoked or salted fish. By all accounts, King Iroch Frey was tired of eating mutton, so he ordered fishing nets installed along the entire length of the bridge to harvest the migrating fish from the river. Iroch is a stout, burly man with hazel eyes, auburn hair, and a matching beard. Still virile and active, he is also seasoned enough for a few distinguished streaks of grey beneath his crown. He wears fitted layers of comfortable fabric and leather, clothes intended for a working man. As often as not, you will find him clad in hues of green and brown. Though any appearance of coordinated fashion has nothing to do with Iroch. He has a wife and a daughter for that. As the king, he bore the responsibility to consider the long-term sustainability of the kingdom. He quickly decreed new fishing laws and formed the Somme River Bridge Guard, SRBG or BGs for short, to protect and maintain the bridge nets throughout the year. To his credit, Iroch understood that while the river provided an endless bounty, any resources could be depleted without some control. As a result, the nets are reinforced and mended for the annual spawning run each spring. The BGs also perform the duty of policing the king's strict fishing quota to assure that everyone gets a fair share. Further away from the river, two generations of Bowdoin forests have been cleared, milled, and exported to decorate the finest homes among the world. However, forests are not cleared overnight. It took years to achieve this feat. Ever the pragmatist, King Iroch implemented other environmental protections to ensure that lumber is a sustainable resource for many years to come. On the western side of the valley, the mountain streams join with tributaries that merge and flow into the river Somme. The land beside the river is fertile and nurtures thick forests 
of pine and evergreen trees, ideal for construction. Some of the cleared forests were eventually replanted with fruit orchids, though very few fruits had the stamina to grow in the short summers. Only apples, plums, and cherries proved hardy enough to thrive in limited sunlight caused by early mountain sundown. Bowdoin truly had become a kingdom of diverse industries. Ironically, the isolation and solitude that allowed them to flourish were also the main factors limiting their growth and expansion. The road of Calderon gave them control over travelers and products coming into their domain, but at times became a bottleneck that limited the free flow of trade between the kingdoms. The king saw this as a failure to plan, so he called a meeting with the finance secretaries of Bowdoin and Gilderland. They all sat at a large table and discussed the kingdom's future. After hours of fiscal gobbledygook, King Eric broke it down to a simple question. What is the cost of bottlenecks and passage closures? He asked. The advisors saw themselves as honorable men of money and felt it was a fiduciary obligation to speak frankly. My lord, they began. It is a financial imperative that we maintain good relations with Calderon. They looked at the king, trying to judge his reaction. His expression remained undecided. They swallowed their apprehension and continued. We have a complete dependence on the mountain pass for the commerce of trade goods, importation, and exportation. They paused again and looked at the king. His only reaction was annoyance at the dramatic pauses. Get on with it, he barked. Yes, sire, they groveled. Strong relations with Calderon will safeguard the mountain pass and ensure that goods can flow freely. Erok mm. said. He stood up and paced around the room. The advisors quickly turned their heads as he stepped behind each one. With relations increasingly tenuous, Erok understood that even the slightest misunderstanding could close the pass and cut off Bowdoin from the outside world. He stopped moving and rubbed his lower lip to think. After a moment, he turned to the men. Well, shoot, that's easy, he said. As long as we don't rock the boat, we should be fine. Chapter 3 Rough Landings Shining Sea Bees Several days travel beyond the southern shores of Calderon. A naval longboat approaches an old abandoned mining post located on the northern coast of Oyster Bay. The day is overcast and covered in mist and fog. The crew can barely see each other, let alone the shoreline or the fleet of large warships anchored in deeper waters behind them. The longboat is close to seven meters in length and holds four pairs of oars and a complement of twenty men, including the boat's pilot or helmsman. Other longboats in the fleet are built with a central mast, but this boat is designed for short-range transport and carries no sails, nor does she bear the colors or a flag of the Calderon fleet. Here comes the breakwaters! Get ready! 
The helmsman suddenly calls out, Row! The men pull hard on the oars as the longboat reaches the breaking waves. The soldiers feel the water spray lash their faces and the bouncing waves beneath the boat. The helmsman is a salty old sailor wearing a white and black vertical striped shirt, a sailor's peacoat jacket, and a dirty white cap with the ship's name stitched on the headband. He has spent years standing on wooden decks that rocked and rolled beneath his feet. He can stomach the violent, churning motion that the choppy waters induce. But the crew manning the oars are not sailors. These men are Calderon Sea Bees, led by Crew Chief Lieutenant Commander Donovan. The soldiers all have matching service caps and job acronyms from builders, known as SBU, to engineering aides, known as SEAC, and every construction job in between. The helmsman smirks. They might be called sea bees in name, but they don't know spit about the sea. The smell of sickness sloshes around the floorboards and rises from their vomit-soaked boots. Dang landlubbers! He mutters aloud. No one hears him or cares. The men are wet and nauseous, but this is still far better than fighting in the eastern campaigns, slugging through rain, filth and mud. Each man carries scars from combat and the death of close comrades and brothers. Oars up! The helmsman yells. The men lift their oars out of the water and they are carried forward by the racing waves until they slide onto a shallow sandbar. The boat comes to a hard, jerking stop, and the slop at their feet splashes up again, covering the men. Everybody out! Get the oars in! The helmsman yells. The men clumsily jump out of the boat and land in water up to their hips. The ground beneath their feet is a mixture of sand and jagged coral. Donovan slips and falls, cutting his hands and knees on the exposed coral. He quickly rights himself, and the men all struggle to work in the open water. Pushed around by the pounding waves, they unfasten the oars and throw them into the boat. The helmsman stays on board and secures the rudder up and out of the water. He then sits down and produces an apple from a jacket pocket. He watches the men floundering in the water, bites the apple and begins to chew. Ready the tow ropes? He suddenly yells. Bits of apple fly out of his mouth. The soldiers position themselves on both sides of the boat and either clutch ropes or grab the boat railing directly. Pull, you squidless wonders! Pull! The men start pulling at the ropes. They know they can either drag a loaded boat off the sandbar or take the time to unload supplies one by one at a time to the beach and then see if she'll float empty. The son of a bitch doesn't budge. They try again and pull with all their might. The helmsman begins to curse the sea gods when a rogue wave rolls under the boat and it begins to move. Neptune's balls! Pull! The men don't care if this is divine intervention or simply that the boat is lighter without their added weight. 
They only care that it is moving forward. Slowly the boat slides off the sandbar, and the men step into deeper water that is up to their waists. They keep moving forward and head toward the shore. The smell of salt, fish, and vomit assaults their noses. The soldier manages to drag the boat up onto the beach. The jagged coral rock is changed into fine ashen sand. The helmsman finally disembarks and steps onto dry land. The men begin to unload their supplies and stack them onto the beach. The helmsman removes the oars and other tackle that will stay with the boat. After the boat is empty, the helmsman directs the soldiers to tilt the longboat onto its side. He then fills a bucket with salt water and splashes out the vomit and other debris from the bottom of the boat. He fills the bucket several times and then instructs the soldiers to tip the boat upside down, which keeps it from filling with rain and allows the lingering chunks to drain out. The helmsman stores the oars and other tangled back underneath. With the boat squared away, he takes out another apple, leans back, and starts to eat. He looks up and down the beach. The mists is finally lifting. Rays of sunlight pierce the clouds and cast scattered patches of light along the shoreline like a drunken beacon. His eyes open wide, but the crashing waves drowned out his speech. What the? Half a click down the shore. The sun has cut a path through the mist and illuminates a long, floating dock, bustling with activity and receiving other longboats from various ships. And this is where we'll stop for now. Because mystery awaits. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed Grim Nights by D.R. Martin. And I gotta say, I'm really, really loving this. And I hope you do too. Go onto Amazon, check out his book. I've got the book in the show notes to save you time. Leave a review and support him. He is a listener like yourself and a supporter of mine that turned author. I really hope you guys and gals get behind him and support him because it's people like you that help make this show what it is and you can help DR Martin punch up and aim high and reach as many people as possible with his awesome book. If you want to hear more, then reach out to me. Let me know what you think of the story thus far. I, for one, really dig it. It has all the trappings of mystery, funny characters, great dialogue, and a lovely dash of magic. So yes, be sure to swing by and support him. Speaking of support, if you want to support me, you can support me at www.patreon.com forward slash SFGT, where you can support me for as much as a cup of tea a month, where all donations go back into repairing old-time radio, locating and finding new stories, and supporting authors directly. Your support helps me help others. It's that simple. Thank you all for listening. A big shout out to my majestic Maya, who has supported this show immensely over the years. Thank you very much. My white tea warlord legend, that is Leza Bauer. You are the most marvelous of men, my good friend. And I hope your week ahead is just wonderful. Your donations have gone straight into a new set of Nero Wolf renditions at Zoot Radio Archives. Thanks to you, you keep the old-time radio aficionados going. Again, thank you, you legend. And my O'Grain forces, I am fortunate to have Chad Warren, Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Effeli, 
Michelangelo Yacone divided by zero. Leah Fassig, Elia Arcane, Solstra, and Paige Kurema. Thank you to all my Patreons for sending me some love every month via a cup of tea. Love yous. Mwah. Now, write your stories, share your tale, make it creepy or something silly about a snail, but remember that little tremor that crawls up your spine or the tingle that makes you smile from a perfect plotline. That's the magic of storytelling. Like tea, it's divine. You took the time to listen to me, and you think that it was your treat. But I thank you, my friends, for the listen. And as always, till next we meet.